Every person who can vote should vote on Election Day. I'm Brian Lehrer. You're listening to the Politics Brief podcast, bringing you the best coverage of the 2018 elections. You'll hear smart conversations from shows like On the Media, The New Yorker Radio Hour, The Takeaway, and yes, The Brian Lehrer Show. Plus, great reporting from our WNYC newsroom. We'll give you the information you need so you can choose wisely on Election Day. Welcome to Politics Brief. Power. The thing about power is it's strongest when it is unspoken. The kind of quiet power that roots down into our lives and grows up through our homes and our families, our intimacies. The kind of power that really starts to feel immutable, like it's just there and like it always will be. That is the power that men have long held over society. It's got to be one of the first things I ever truly internalized, that to be male meant to be ready to lead, to take charge. A male gender identity holds the kind of power you just take for granted. Or it did, anyway. Do we retreat or do we fight? I say we fight. I came here tonight to make you a promise. I'm just getting started. We will be here, and we are going to rock the world in the next two years. Rock it! So I want all the girls watching here and now to know that a new day is on the horizon! We need to stand up for what we believe in. We need to change the world. And to those who would dare try and silence us, we offer you two words. Time's up. We are just weeks from an election. It is increasingly conventional wisdom that this will be a wave election, a big partisan shift toward the Democratic Party. But it is more accurately described as a wave of women and some men who are no longer taking that male power for granted. November elections will see a record number of women on the ballot. Including nearly 500 who have their sights set on the nation's capital. You know, this is not a spectator sport, right? We've got to get off the sidelines and be part of this. This election could well make history. And not because of policy or ideology or even one person, but because this is a moment in which we are finally calling the question. Do white men still have a singular claim to real power in our society and in our politics? This is the United States of Anxiety. I'm Kai Wright. And in this season, gender, power, and the midterm elections. This election cannot be separated from the Me Too movement that Tarana Burke began more than a decade ago and that has erupted over the past year. It is impossible to ignore the connection to the president, to the utter lack of accountability he faced for bragging about sexual assault. A little use of Tic Tacs just in case they start kissing her. But right now... Christine Blasey Ford says she was sexually assaulted by Kavanaugh more than three decades ago when they were both teenagers... Just weeks from Election Day, the Me Too tide is crashing into the White House. This past weekend, Christine Blasey Ford came forward to describe an attempted rape. She says that Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh assaulted her when they were teenagers. And as we produce this episode, it's unclear how that news will affect Kavanaugh's confirmation. But 
Whatever happens, it already feels like a watershed moment in American politics. And to understand why, we can't just jump right into the public spectacle of electoral politics. We have to first consider the private, personal way male power has operated in the lives of millions of women and what it means for women to challenge that power. It's useful to back up to this past February and the last time the White House dealt with allegations of sexual abuse. This is the pattern, obviously, of uh, the alleged assaulters and abusers that the White House has defended, uh, most recently with Rob Porter, Roy Moore in Alabama. Rob Porter. He was part of the president's inner circle, responsible for what did and did not land on the president's desk. And apparently Trump quite liked him, though probably not so much now, since he was a source for Bob Woodward's new book. But Porter left the White House earlier this year amid questions about domestic abuse. WNYC reporter Amanda Aronchik has our first story of a woman who pushed back. And just a note that a lot about this story is disturbing. There's offensive language and there are descriptions of abuse. A few months ago, at a yacht club in Greenwich, Connecticut, hundreds of women gathered to bid on some very fancy items. It's a $10,000 handbag. How about we start the bidding at three? Who wants to give me 3000 Three. There was a luncheon of lobster and snap peas, frosted cupcakes, and a few rounds of Prosecco. And there's a gift certificate in it. Woohoo! If you ever wanted to raise a lot of money in a short period of time, this is how it's done. $20,000 in the front. All right. It's starting to get on here right now. The money goes to the YWCA Greenwich to help pay for their domestic abuse services. Good afternoon, everyone. If I could have your attention, please. Usually there's a guest speaker and it's someone local, but not this year. You may recognize Jennifer Willoughby from her appearance on CNN with Anderson Cooper or her interview on the Today Show. Jennifer Willoughby. Rob Porter's ex-wife, the second ex-wife, the one you saw on every TV news channel this past February. Jenny, thank you for being with us. Jenny stood up from the head table and confidently walked up to the podium. Hello, Greenwich community. If she felt at all self-conscious being in a room full of women who knew a lot about her disastrous marriage, she didn't let on for a second. Um... I was really excited when I was asked and given the opportunity to speak here because I was a lot like you. I was raised to honor poise, privacy, position, power, success. Those are the things that I strived for. And you'll notice she then put up snapshots of her and Rob Porter on a small screen behind her. Them together singing karaoke, at a baseball game, at church. A few short years ago, I was married with a house and a yard in the suburbs, dreams of children and exotic and tropical vacations and black tie events on Capitol Hill as the politician's wife. The idea that I could want anything different than the white middle class life that I was aimed towards never even occurred to me. This is the American dream. This was what I wanted until I didn't. The marriage was a mess. 
The home was empty and cold. The events were fake. The smiles and attention were inauthentic. And the dream was not mine. Here's the story you might not know about Jenny Willoughby. By the time she appeared in the news, it had already been a few years since she divorced Rob Porter. She had more or less moved on. At the time, what propelled you to come forward? So this is a thing that I think has been lost in translation in a lot of the media coverage, that I somehow came forward with this story. I'm not that woman. I didn't see domestic violence as as my cause, and I certainly didn't want to be the torchbearer. Before everything became public, did the people around you believe you? I didn't really talk about it. (laughs) I hadn't told anybody anything. I met Rob almost 10 years ago, and it was a fast, whirlwind, romantic courtship because I believed Carrie Bradshaw when she said she wanted love, real love, ridiculous, consuming, can't live without each other love. The first signs of abuse actually came in were very subtle. He wanted me to change my hair. He wanted me to maybe subdue my humor, my personality when we were out at public events. And at the time, I was so enamored with him that I thought, oh, I can play that part. That's what I want. And so I proceeded to get married. I had already at that point been experiencing his temper. But then on our honeymoon, he called me a fucking bitch, told me that I was selfish. And it was brought on by the fact that he didn't think that I was having enough sex with him on our honeymoon. Did you regret getting married? Yes. I think I knew within the first week or two that I'd made a horrible mistake. But because of my own personal convictions and religious beliefs, I was determined to work on the marriage. In the years that I spent in that marriage, I valued his career and I valued keeping that secret because I was ashamed. I was ashamed of what I had been enduring behind closed doors, and I was ashamed of what would happen to him if people knew. By the time I actually did go and meet with a divorce attorney and and start to make more permanent separations, I would have given anything to get out. I, you know, moved all my things out in the middle of the night after he had flown to go somewhere. And I think, from my point, it was desperation and exhaustion to the point where I can't do this anymore, and it's not changing. And the only way for me to be able to survive and not kill myself is to get out. Their marriage ended in 2013. So flash forward now to January of 2017 and the inauguration of Donald Trump. On that day, Rob Porter officially began his job as White House Staff Secretary. He started working closely with the president, drafting the State of the Union. Meanwhile, the FBI is doing background checks on the new administration. They contact Jenny Willoughby. So the first time that she describes in detail what happened in her marriage is to the FBI. And it brings it all back. In April of that year, she sat down to write a short blog post titled, Why I Stayed. 
It's meant to be cathartic and, who knows, maybe even helpful for others. Friends of Rob Porter's saw the post. I think friends who follow me on Instagram told him about it the day that it went up, and he called me and asked that I take it down, asked as a polite word for how he asked me to take it down, and I said no. So he asked her again and again. And I realized each time that he asked me that if this did come to light, I have nothing to be ashamed of. For 10 months, no one even noticed her post until... Some political enemies of Rob pointed reporters to that blog post. Then everything started moving quickly. And I got phone calls from two reporters within an hour of each other, both of whom indicated that they had this blog post and they had questions about my marriage. Jenny had to decide. She could lay low, or she could agree to talk to the media about her marriage. And so at that point, rather than let them use my words and make it something much more salacious than it was, I wanted to be the person who was speaking on what happened in my marriage. Jenny, good morning. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. It's not easy to... Not only did she appear on talk shows, she was so candid about what happened. Um, We had been fighting, and Rob followed me to the shower and, and pulled me out of the shower to continue the rage and um, immediately saw how scared I was and and recognized what he was doing and released. I'm used to living in D.C. and catching the news and there's a scandal and different people that are involved and I was watching it and it was me. And I was watching it and it was Rob. Somewhat shocking revelations about domestic abuse. There are denials, blanket denials from Rob Porter saying that the context is larger It's not the full understanding. And it was just this surreal out-of-body experience. If ever there was a moment when the White House demonstrated that it simply did not care about the experiences of women, this was it. They called Rob Porter a man of integrity and honor. They couldn't say enough good things about him. Rob has been an effective in his role as staff secretary, and the president and chief of staff have had full confidence and trust in his abilities and his performance. What they couldn't refute was a photo. It showed Rob Porter's first wife, with her brown hair pulled back, looking straight into the camera, a purple and yellow bruise puffy under her right eye. During a vacation in Italy, he had punched her in the face. Her expression in the photo isn't angry or woeful. It's as though she's saying... Here, look. Look what you did. White House Staff Secretary Rob Porter is stepping down. His resignation comes after Porter was accused of domestic abuse. Two of his ex-wives claim that he physically and emotionally abused them during their marriages. Domestic abuse is so common. One in four women will experience it at some point during her lifetime. And yet still, no one wants to talk about it. But here was Jenny Willoughby on the TV news telling Lawrence O'Donnell intimate details of her marriage. O'Donnell asked her to read from the blog post that started the whole thing. Normally, as the host, when I have this kind of material, I read it. Um, but could you read this for us? I would, I would love to read it. I haven't read it out loud ever. I kept my mouth shut and stayed If he was a monster all the time, perhaps it would have been easier to leave. But he could be kind and sensitive. And so I stayed. Friends and clergy didn't believe me. And so I stayed. I was pregnant. And so I stayed. 
I lost the pregnancy and became depressed. And so I stayed. There were two kinds of responses to Jenny's story, and they battled it out on her blog. Now, I'm going to read you some of the comments, and I need to warn you that some of this is really nasty. I just keep wondering why you didn't know anything about your husband since you were his second wife. You must really be stupid. I read that you did an interview with Anderson Cooper. Did you get paid for it? How much money did you milk from him? I feel sorry for Rob. Fuck you, stupid cunts. Fuck all you Me Too's also. All you whores want to use your pussy to get what you want, then bitch about it. Did you feel regretful at that point about the blog post? No, I have not for one second felt regretful about that blog post. That's because of the other kind of responses she was getting. The hundreds of comments that were coming in on this blog post, the hundreds of tweets, direct messages, emails of people sharing their story, men and women, telling me how I had saved their lives, asking me for help. One person wrote, I keep a screenshot of this on my phone. I read it every day. I'm telling him tomorrow that I'm leaving. It's possible I won't make it out of this house alive. I mean, it was just earth-shattering to me that I could have that much of an impact just by telling the truth. In my new life today, I live in a tiny New York tenement. No yard. No kids. No political influence. In my new life, I relinquish control over where I thought I should be, and I rest content and astounded by all that is. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you still think this is a story about the White House, you're missing the point. For generations, we have neglected to galvanize as women and as a society against abuse, and this is our clarion call to action. Jennifer Willoughby stood and rejected a man's assertion of power over her life. But listening to her story, I also hear someone who, through a lot of pain, began to question the very nature of power and privilege. To realize that truly challenging power means reimagining it altogether. And in escaping Porter's abuse, Willoughby developed a fundamentally different idea about what she wanted from a marriage and for her life. And it feels like Donald Trump's impunity, his open objectification of women, and his Kafka-esque presidency, all of it has brought a lot of people to a similar realization about power and privilege in America. Millions of people, particularly women, have developed a different understanding of what they want from our democracy and how they can get it. Coming up, how that shift in perspective could totally remake American politics. Stay with us. You're listening to the Politics Brief Podcast. We'll be back after a quick break.
Much has been said about the record number of women running for office and the diversity of them. A black woman in Georgia and a transgender woman in Vermont are mounting historic gubernatorial campaigns. A 28-year-old Latina in Queens has already ousted one of the most powerful Democrats in Congress. But it's more than the candidates. It's also the organizers. And many of them are also women who looked up after the 2016 election and decided something has got to change. WNYC reporter Nancy Solomon has spent months with one such group of activists who are working hard to flip New Jersey's 11th congressional district for Democrats. Hey, Nancy. Hi, Kai. So where does the story of this congressional race begin? Well, you know, the whole story about this seat really begins, at least for our purposes, with a woman I met named Siley Avalenda. Siley Avalenda. Okay, so who's Siley? She's a suburban mom. She's got two kids. Um, and she worked at a bank. She's a lawyer. And she was never politically engaged or involved except for going to vote until November 9th, 2016, the morning after the election. I cried my eyes out and I vowed to my husband that I never would sit on a couch again and watch anything happen. I just remember thinking, I, I don't have any excuses anymore. I mean, I have a skill set. I have a voice. What's holding me back from doing anything? And I think everybody that I've talked to kind of felt the same way. If not for voters like me who didn't get off the couch, maybe we would have had a different result. So I took it personally. So she's really impacted by this, as many people were, and now she's got this sense of urgency. What's her next step? Well, she does what everyone does. She goes to her computer. <laughs> and she starts looking for help. Within a couple of days, she joins a group on Facebook, and this group is growing and growing, and finally somebody says, hey, why don't we meet in person? And so a bunch of people show up at a coffee shop, and, you know, then you start to see quite quickly that this group is being driven by white suburban women who were new to political activism. No step that we took, other than maybe forming the organization, was entirely planned out and mapped out in a way that I was used to with my corporate and legal background. Like, you don't do things on the fly. You don't just form organizations with strangers, you know, 10 or 11 people you just met maybe last week. But we all bought into the mission of what we were trying to accomplish. Yeah, these are uh, middle-class and upper-middle-class people. They're professionals. They're lawyers. A few people work at Google. They're project planners. There were event planners who know how to put on a bar mitzvah. I, it turns out... These are some pretty good skills for creating a political organization. Right, they hadn't right. done it before, but they kind of knew what they were doing. It's and they, the same stuff applied to a different thing. Yeah. They decided to call themselves NJ11th for change, as in New Jersey's 11th district, because they realized they couldn't change the fact that Trump had been elected, but they could set their sights on their own congressman, a Republican named Rodney Freelingheisen. Okay, so NJ11 for change. Now they're on the scene. They're targeting this Rodney Freelingheisen. Who is he? Tell me about him. He has been in office for 23 years, and he's never faced a serious contender ever once. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Michael Moore, and I'm here today In to fact, the opposition to him has been so weak among the Democrats that Michael Moore, in an act of political theater, once ran a ficus tree against him. For the 11th District Congressional seat in the state of New Jersey. Thank you very much. So I don't get it. If this is a swing district, why has this guy been so safe for so long that you can run a ficus tree against him? Well, 
Freelinghuysen is chairman of the House Appropriations Committee. That's a powerful position. But it's almost like he was born to represent this district. His father held the seat in Congress before he did. In fact, his family goes back to the founding of New Jersey, (laughs) and they were colonists. One of his forebears was on the committee that wrote the state constitution. (laughs) You know, another was the vice presidential running mate of Henry Clay of the Whig Party in 1844. He's heir to the Ballantine beer fortune, which, you know, for people today, they might not get. Like Ballantine beer, when I was a kid, that was like Budweiser. <laughs> Next time you're in your favorite tavern, better make it Ballantine, America's finest since 1840. On his mother's side, he's the great-great-grandson of William Proctor, who's co-founder of Proctor & Gamble. Gamble. I mean, so this is like the ultimate patriarch. If there is an aristocracy still in America, then the Freelingheisens are certainly part of it. So... Siley Avalinda and her band of Facebook friends decide they're going to target this power, right? I mean, so what do they do? You know, they realize that Rodney Freelingheisen hasn't held a town hall in something like three years. And so the very first thing they do is ask him to hold one. We have a congressman who will not go face to face with his own constituents. No. Does it work? I mean, does... Freelingheisen actually hold a town hall? No, he ignores them. So the group starts doing what they called Fridays with Freelingheisen, where sometimes some 400 people would show up at these things. I went to one one day, and uh, they're standing with umbrellas uh, with messages written on them in the pouring rain. But he wasn't there ever at the office when they would come, but that didn't stop them from sending a parade of people to lodge their complaints, their questions. How does he stand on the repeal of Obamacare and how is he, what's he going to replace it with? That's our question. And the most important question is when is he having a town hall meeting? He finally holds what he calls a town hall, but they're phone calls. Please don't hesitate to hit the zero at any time to ask a question or make a comment. And you, you start to see... This guy is starting to really get annoyed about all the protesting happening. For people who have jammed our lines and made it difficult for us to meet our constituent needs, it would be nice for you to back off. Okay, so this guy does not sound like somebody who's taking Siley and her crew very seriously. And frankly, he just sounds pretty arrogant. Right. I think he feels pretty safe and untouchable. But then he makes a mistake. How so? What was the mistake? Well, Siley Avalenda is one of the people leading this charge against Freelingheisen. Remember, she's an attorney and a senior vice president at a local bank, and now she's super involved in NJ 11th for change. And as I was reporting on this movement, I went to one of their meetings in May of last year. Hi. Hi. We're sitting around the dining room table, and it comes up that Freelingheisen had sent a letter written on campaign stationery to one of the board members of the bank where Siley worked. For those that don't know, my congressman wrote a board member at my former employer. And, and what did this letter say? 
He's asking for contributions to fight off local groups and national groups that are mounting a challenge to him. <laughs> then there's a little asterisk. And down at the bottom, next to his blue-inked signature, he says, P.S., one of the ringleaders works in your bank, exclamation point. Wow. So he is literally targeting Siley to her employer. Yes. I felt like I was in a 1970s movie with some, you know, cigar-filled room where I'm a ringleader. I mean, who puts that on a piece of paper? You make a power cor- for 22 years without opposition. Needless to say, that did cause some issues at work that uh, were difficult to overcome. She says she got hauled in on the carpet. She got asked a bunch of questions about her political activity and whether it was going to harm relationships at the bank and the bank's business. She says she was made to write a letter to her CEO about her political activity. It became very uncomfortable for her. And ultimately, she resigned. And I thought that my congressman put me in a really bad situation as a constituent that used his name and he used his position and he used his stationery. To, um, to try to punish me. So you did, in fact, report all of this at the time. What was the fallout from it? What, what happened? Well, we broke the story, and it went crazy all over the country. <laughs> and um, it resulted in some ethics complaints filed against Rodney Freelingheisen. But more damaging, it was seen as mean-spirited. And that really hurt his reputation. And... In the months that followed, what we start to see is that Freelingheisen isn't raising the kind of money the chairman of the Appropriations Committee was expected to haul in for his re-election. Siley Avalenda is not just out of a job, but she's out of a career because no bank will hire her. And so, you know, she tells me about this moment in January of 2018 when she's sitting at her desk at home going through Freelingheisen's fundraising reports. It was a a Monday, and I was sitting at my desk, and as I was coming up with the fact that he'd only had 11 in-district donations, I was texting our treasurer that I couldn't believe that, that he'd only had 11 in-district donations and raised about $4,000 in-district, which is insane. And then I put my phone down, and it it almost fell off the, the desk because it started to vibrate so much from the texts, and I looked over, and it just had exploded. There was big news on the television. Congressman Rodney Freelingheisen announced he will retire from the House of Representatives and not run for re-election this year. That's a mighty position to give up. But I was really stunned. I just couldn't even believe it. it took 447 days from the November 2016 election to have him resign. 447 days. So, wow, does Siley take credit for that? No. Believe me, I've tried to get her to. Uh, But now she's NJ Levinth for Change's executive director. But there's something else. A Democratic candidate entered the race early, the kind of candidate Rodney Freelingheisen had never seen the likes of. And then when I saw that we had a a congressman who was refusing to hold town halls and meet with his constituents, I decided to run for Congress. Right. That is Mikey Sherrill, who really has become one of the stars of this campaign season. She's the kind of candidate made for this district. She's a former Navy helicopter pilot. She's a former federal prosecutor. She's a mom of four kids. She's telegenic. So she starts visiting the protests. And then when she announces her candidacy, just 
takes off running, and there's just now this groundswell of support behind her. So Frelinghuysen was facing not just NJ Levin for change and Sile Avalenda and the mistake he made, but this new candidate who really fits the mold of what the Democratic Party is putting forward these days in these swing districts. I am so honored to be your candidate. And I am so proud to declare that we are ready here in New Jersey to flip this seat and turn the 11th district blue. Mikey Sherrill is now favored to win the seat in November. And Frelinghuysen is one of more than two dozen Republicans who have decided to walk away from elected office entirely. That alone is a historic number, and it's a big part of why it's at all conceivable that Democrats could take over Congress. Overall, there are now nearly 40 Republican seats in the House that Democrats are either favored to win or that are very competitive. Many of those seats should be safe for Republicans. And a big part of why they're in play is women like Siley Avalenda, women who have gotten into the game. These women could change the math of American politics. And that's the real story here. Because this election will almost surely turn on a wonky but really pivotal indicator, something political scientists call the gender gap. Uh, That's the difference between the percentage of women and the percentage of men voting for a given candidate. This is Amy Walter, national editor of the Cook Political Report and co-host of The Takeaway here at WNYC. She says the gender gap is not just the so-called women's vote. It's deeper than that. It's a measure of how intensely our politics are sorted by gender. And for years, that's been extremely predictable. So in every presidential election since 1980, a gender gap has been apparent, with a greater proportion of women than men preferring the Democratic candidate. 2016 was run-of-the-mill in this regard. Overall, just 41 percent of women, that's all races, voted for Trump, compared to 52 percent of men. So that's a gender gap of 11 points, right? 52 minus 41. In 2012, it was 10 points. With women stacking for Obama, it's almost always like that in presidential elections. Double-digit spreads, women for the Dems and men for the Republicans. But congressional elections tend to be less defined by the big cultural divides of presidential politics. So in midterms, in years like this one, when there's no presidential vote, the gender gap shrinks dramatically, down to single digits. But this year? So far, polling suggests the gender gap could be off the charts, way into the double digits. Both parties see that number, and both are looking at a very specific voter to explain it. White women with college degrees. Think of voters who live in around big urban or suburban areas like Philadelphia, Los Angeles, Denver, Chicago. These women are not reliable Democratic voters, not in congressional elections. The Democrats have always been able to count on women of color and young women, and they'll need those voters again this year. But the question is whether Donald Trump has turned white women with college degrees into reliable Democrats. If they were able to do that, that would be historic. In New Jersey's 11th district, polling this summer put Mikey Sherrill in the lead with a very presidential 10-point gender gap. And that may be happening all over the country. But before we go any further with this season, we got to acknowledge this has happened before. There was another political moment, one with explosive allegations against a Supreme Court nominee that also got dubbed the Year of the Woman. 
Mr. Chairman, Senator Thurman, members of the committee, my name is Anita F. Hill, and I am a professor of law at the University of Oklahoma. How'd that end? What long-term impact did that have on Congress and on the balance of power in Washington? That's our next episode on the United States of Anxiety. The United States of Anxiety is a production of WNYC Studios and the newsroom of WNYC. This episode was reported by Amanda Aronchik and Nancy Solomon. Our producer is Jessica Miller. Casey Means is our technical director. Our theme music was written by Hannes Brown and performed by the Outer Borough Brass Band. This episode was edited by Christopher Wirth, Kari Pitkin, and Karen Froman, who is also our executive producer. Jim Schachter is vice president of news for WNYC, and I'm Kai Wright. Thanks for listening. The United States of Anxiety is supported in part by the Economic Hardship Reporting Project. Additional support for WNYC's election coverage is provided by Emerson Collective, the New York Community Trust, and New York Public Radio trustee, Dr. Mary White. Thanks for listening to Politics Brief. If you want more, go to wnyc.org slash election.